fight against when this balloon of yours goes up. Forces of anarchy, wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. Hi Austin, so uh, you're going to be here today to talk to us about Byung-Chul Han. Now Byung-Chul Han is a German-Korean philosopher yep. and uh, I was wondering could you just maybe begin by telling us a little bit about him or offering a little character sketch? Yeah, so this is the tricky thing because uh, for one, he is quite an elusive figure. He apparently there are these anecdotes that he'll tell reporters to not record him with their tape recorders and he doesn't really do public appearances like you would never see him doing like i don't know some sort of youtube series like jordan peterson with a patreon trying to raise money i mean he he doesn't seem to want to have a very large public persona or like a social media presence and I think that kind of fits into his philosophy. So he's a little bit of a mysterious figure and there are interviews and articles that have been done with him or written about him, but they all seem to report the same thing, that he's kind of this enigmatic, mysterious philosopher. He's Korean-German, so he moved to Germany in, I believe, the 80s and he did his PhD on Heidegger at Freiburg. And then he is kind of – people lump him together a lot of times with Marcus Gabriel as being sort of on the uh, maybe the vanguard of these new emergent German philosophers who are gaining also some level of, of popularity with regards to their work, that it's, it's kind of demystifying the complexity of German philosophy for a lot of people. So apparently a couple of Byung-Chul Han's works have been uh, widely read both in Germany and actually apparently in Latin America, where I, I guess that his a lot of his works have been translated. Okay, so he's, he's so he's quite popular in South America, Latin America, and Germany. Yeah, and I mean, I believe the, his works have been translated into quite a few languages, but I don't think he has as big of a following. He doesn't have much recognition in the English-speaking world yet. I know one of his books was um, published by Verso. I believe it was the Transparency Society, but... Um, or maybe not. Maybe it was a different work. I can't remember which. But but regardless, he just doesn't seem to have as much notoriety in that world yet. Okay. So um, yeah. So we haven't seen him or heard of him that much in the uh, in the um, in the anglophone world in the UK, basically, or the United States. Um, what do you think? What do you think um, explains his appeal? Then what do you think explains his appeal? In Germany, or why is he popular? You know, if yeah. he's if he's if he's being read sort of outside beyond the academy, uh, and uh, if the same in uh, Latin America. Sure, I mean, I think there are a couple of things. One, at just a superficial level, his books are all really, really short. So <laughs> they're they're in the thirty-five to fifty-page range, which means that they're extremely accessible. But I mean, and I think that's a, that's appealing to people, obviously, rather than you know, reading some five-volume text by Sartre that's 1,100 pages that he never finished or something like that, which is just daunting, right? (laughs) So (laughs) I I think that there's an appeal at that level. And then I think more substantively, the reason that his work is so appealing and and at least why it's so appealing to me is that he, one, is, is tackling issues that are very, that are very pressing for us post-financial collapse, post-2007-2008. He talks obviously a lot about neoliberalism and something that he's termed the achievement subject or the achievement society. We can talk about that in a minute. And also he has termed our age, uh, this sort of post-modern, neoliberal, late capitalist epic, if you will, the burnout society. And these themes seem to really resonate with people who are dealing with trauma, anxiety, depression rates are increasing, um, sort of pharmaceutical use is on the rise, ADHD, what he would call like hyperactivity, seems to be something that is a direct consequence of these these 
political economic tensions. And I think it really has it kind of resonates with people. And he does it in a way that maybe it's because he did his work on Heidegger, but it's got like a real poetic flourish to it. And so it's very enjoyable. Like in his book, The Agony of Eros, the first chapter is a, a it's kind of, I guess, an analysis. It's not really a, an exposition, but it's a sort of conceptual analysis of Lars von Trier's melancholia. So he's also using media images and cultural theory and cultural studies and and media studies alongside rich uh, traditional philosophical analysis. Okay. So, um, well, you, if we're going to try and explain sort of his core themes of his work, yeah. you mentioned Heidegger there. So, uh, Heidegger, German philosopher, one of the big German philosophers of the 20th century, he seems to be quite influential on Han. Um, yeah. And Heidegger was someone who, who, as his work progressed, sort of was a thinker who existed in the, uh, in the sort of the nexus of poetry, philosophy, literature. Right. right? Is, and obviously he has this critique of technology as well. Is that where Han takes his jumping off point? I think so. Yeah, I, I do think so. Um, in the preface to Agony of Eros, uh, Len Badiou actually writes the preface. Uh, and, and the kind of theme of the text is that in our world at the moment, the late capitalist, neoliberal, postmodern world, love has become impossible and this is what he calls the agony of Eros. And it has to do with what he sees as the sort of uh, diminishing of otherness and that he, we're just encamped in the inferno of the same, which we can, again, we can elaborate in a minute. But the thing is, is that Badiou talks about how one of Han's projects seems to be inspired by the poet Rimbaud, who wants to think of how we can do or how we can understand love afresh. What is love in a new way? To rethink, re-understand love. And for Badiou, that's a really important project. And I think for Han, he's inspired by that sort of poetic, maybe romantic desire to recapture love in an era, in an era of what Han calls pornification, where love he believes is impossible now in this age of the inferno of the same, of the sort of just radical proliferation of maybe we would say simulacra, simulacra or mediated images, something along those lines. So there's a there's a real romantic desire to sort of, in a Heideggerian sense, uh, have a clearing of being, and and allow for the the ontological grounding to sort of break forth and disrupt the the sameness of our mundane, hyperactive, postmodern lives. So the. The yeah, that I mean that makes sense to me because Heidegger, well, Heidegger's point is that we have uh, the question of being is motivated by our inability to philosophize, mm. which if you think you know, I mean, it's this philosophy one hundred one, the meaning of the word philosophy in, in incorporates the word love in terms of the philia, right? The philia and and, and Han would say yeah. that we we can't do philosophy if we can't love, and since we can't love philosophy is sort of impossible. So for, for him, philosophy is the sort of, um, it is the translation of eros into logos. It is recognizing love, but doing so through the tools of reason. And, and so for him, eros sort of becomes, and he borrows this kind of thinking alongside Deleuze and Guattari, where he talks about Eros is the kind of transcendental condition for thinking itself, because it is essentially disruptive. It's it's this event that sort of shakes us and dissolves, if you will, this this just bland repetition of the inferno of the same and and confronts us with otherness and negativity. And that's something that's that's radically transformative and that's something that's radically different than what our culture commonly um, offers us. So the, the right. So let's 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 sort of try and talk. I guess what about what's distinctive then about Han? Because okay. if 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 the um, if the problem is sort of sameness, uh, 
conventionality, homogeneity, all of these things are making the world a lot more drab. What is it as distinctive about Han in terms of what he has to say about that? You mentioned the word neoliberalism, and uh, lots of people on the podcast mentioned the word neoliberalism. <laughs> what the fuck uh, is neoliberalism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess uh, I guess uh, I guess that's the question. Or I mean, the reason I say it is because like Heidegger uh, was writing up until the seventies, but the term neoliberalism or its effects is something that. Uh, academics, scholars, thinkers, politicians say it has become much more intense as we moved towards the twenty first century. So yeah, so that's the question. What 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 is neoliberalism yeah. for you? So he doesn't spend at least because he doesn't spend too much time defining terms. He he oftentimes runs a little roughshod over things, and he's much more of like a a syncretist and a synthesizer of all of these various ideas but he does it in a, in i think in a, in a novel approach and so neoliberalism for him it doesn't have some sort of rigorous definition it, i think it kind of has a standard definition that's tied to postmodernity late capitalism maybe a, a sped up version of the cultural logic of capitalism so we might say in marxian terms that neoliberalism or he he tends to refer to late capitalism more than neoliberalism but uh, let's say late capitalism is the realization of real subsumption in Marxian terms. So formal subsumption and real subsumption are different from Marx. Formal subsumption is the tendency in primitive accumulation for capital to accumulate these pre-existent modes of production into the logic of capital. Real subsumption is the point at which all of these sort of modes, all of the moments of capital as value in motion have been completely incorporated into the system itself. And so Han, I actually have a quote here that he says, he says, uh, in late capitalism, individuals degrade into the genital organs of capital. So everything is just simply an organ of capital. Right. And and I think there's something interesting too. The genital organs is important because I think there's like a, a libidinal element to that that's important for Han. And then also the idea of just being fully degraded into these just appendages, these libidinal appendages of capital itself. So it's this sort of pure radical intensification of real subsumption of the logic of capital. So he's, he's almost saying there that we're uh, – that this late capitalism that we're experiencing – the intensification of capitalism, the speeding up of capitalism, as you say, it almost sounds like he says that it's, make, we're, it's turning us into animals of some kind. I mean, he does talk about bare life. In his book, uh, The Agony of Eros, he does have a chapter on bare life, and he does mention that. And so one of the things that that the logic of late capitalism means for him is that we are just these um, – Bodies seeking dopamine rushes through instantaneous, perpetual instantaneous or instances, let's say, of pleasure. And um, and and what that does is that sort of just makes us into perpetual consumers of things that give us that pleasure. And I think there is a real sense in which that that is a degradation of humanity into a form of bare life or animality. I, he doesn't quite say that, at least in in what I've read, but I think that you're right. I think you're definitely hitting at something. It is a dehumanization in a way for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So like the little the little red uh, uh, the little red uh, notification numbers on Facebook and uh, Twitter and things like that. That's mm. uh, they're they're giving us our, these real instantaneous uh, dopamine rushes, which means that we're. Uh, we're just um, pleasure-seeking animals. Or that's Absolutely. what we're be- becoming. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and he talks about how they're, it's kind of an act of worship. Every time you like or every time you share or every time you retweet something, it's an act of worship. So it, it's not just um, like in it, – it's not like some sort of he, – he's, he's distancing himself from Foucault. It's not some sort of biopolitical management. It's actually – it's the – you want to do this and you become the own cause of your self-exploitation, which he sees as being much more efficient than uh, other exploitation. He calls allo-exploitation, but it's auto-exploitation. And we do this because we want to like these things and we want to share these things. And we want to be content producers because 
that is the way that we are able to achieve. He calls ourselves the achievement subject. We're able to achieve all that we can be. You know, it's like the Joel Osteen, be the best you or, or, or you know, the prosperity gospels uh, in the United States that talk about, you know, becoming a better you in the kind of process of, of pleasing God. And then you will be rewarded because of that. He says that the, all of that is the sort of, uh, this kind of hyperactive realization of this logic of late capitalism, and we do so willingly as we exploit ourselves. I'm thinking Radiohead, you do it to yourself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you you mentioned Foucault there. Um, you said that there's, he's, um, he's, maybe that would be a helpful way of uh, talking about what Han is trying to get to. You said, uh, and I have a quote here, uh, you said that he's, uh, he's, he's, he's different to Michel Foucault, the French thinker, because, uh, and Han himself says, uh, he says the 21st century is no longer a disciplinary society, which right. is a Foucauldian term, but rather an achievement society. Yeah. So, so who, could you maybe talk to that shift or what he's tried to articulate by saying we've we've gone from a disciplinary society to an achievement society? Yeah. So in a disciplinary society, there's still an element of negativity. You must do mm. something or you should do something because you're under the watchful eye of the other. There's still an element of otherness. Now, of course, you 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 do internalize that and you become a sort of self-policing entity within the panopticon, the logic of the panopticon. But for Han, he says, and, and I think he sort of is building off of maybe even Deleuze's building off of disciplinary society in his postscript for control society, but maybe even fleshing that idea out a little bit more and that the logic doesn't derive from outside, but it actually is completely internalized. And he basically says that it can be summed up in the idea of the demand to be free. So that's the logic of late capitalism, of the achievement society. You must be free. But that's not some sort of imposition from without because we internalize that and it becomes our own mantra of, of self-activity. It's what motivates us every day. And it's why we do mindfulness and it's why businesses have cheap ha chief happiness officers now, right? It's so that we can mm. become more free as we sell our labor more rapidly under the self-exploitative logic of late capitalism. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And what do you think, uh, Austin, what do you think um, in this achievement society then, what do you think is, uh, what type of people is it producing? Well, he no. says he says you become an entrepreneur of the self is, is kind of what he says. So you become an entrepreneur of the self and you're constantly working on yourself. But the ironic thing is the more you work on yourself, the more guilt you impose upon yourself and you end up becoming hyperactive, which leads to depression, anxiety, ADHD, uh, hyperactivity disorders. And he talks about then his this in his book, The Burnout Society. And basically the reason this happens is because we are all products of over-positivity, over-productivity, and we exploit ourselves by sort of living in this inferno of the same at an increased rate. And he uses this distinction between infection and infarction. And I mm -hmm. had actually never heard of the word infarction before because I don't study <laughs> medical science. <laughs> but apparently, so infection is the idea of something coming from without, and infarction is a sort of uh, imbuing or an infusing into something. So um, it, it's it's not something that you have to be immunized from. It's not an immunology that comes from without or even a pharmacology, but it's, it's something that is uh, – it, it just like blossoms from within because it becomes the very logic that we ourselves want as we are seeking to become our best us or whatever it is that we're doing. And all that does is burn us out. It, it leads to extreme tiredness. He believes it leads to depression rather than melancholy. Melancholy, he says, is something that occurs by having the object that we, like in the Freudian sense, the object of cathexis, uh, the, uh, the object that we in, invested with love and libidinal desire and, you know, a loved one is someone that we've literally imbued ourselves into and then we lose that person, then we experience melancholy. That's not what depression is for him. Depression is for him is the sort of burnout and breakdown that occurs from being stuck within this self-referential, maybe circular uh, experience of, of hyperactivity in the burnout society. Yeah, yeah, and I can see why that has uh, a kind of a philosophy of everyday life appeal, you know, right. because 
yeah, because we, uh, I mean, even anecdotally, we know that people are more stressed, more anxious, more fatigued, you know, and right. uh, bur- burnout is a is a is a is 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 a, is a common theme. In, well, yeah, and then um, and then when burnout happens, we're blamed, right? Like, oh, well, mm. you're just not eating a healthy enough diet. You're not taking enough vitamins. You're not working out enough. You're not doing something. The responsibility becomes yours because you're being burnt out by the system. And so you need to then be a better you so that you don't get burned out again. And then all that does is, is move the goal further. And exactly. And it's this endless process. So for him, he kind of – in a way, he's kind of a mystic because he advocates a sort of unplugging and – he talks about silence and he talks about – he's written a book mm. on Zen meditation, on Zen Buddhism. And he talks about um, idiotism, you know, and this idea of of how the earliest philosophers, you know, Socrates, he knew nothing except for one thing, that he knew nothing, right? And he's, mm-hmm. he, he talks about the – the sort of value of being an idiot in this sense of sort of withdrawing, of pulling yourself away, of silence, of disconnecting, of of unplugging. And he thinks that that isn't just some sort of negation of activity, but he actually thinks that that's the grounding of one thought, as we said earlier, but also the possibility of politics comes from that. It's this idea of an active withdrawal, an active negation of the positivity that the burnout society imposes on us. Seems like a bit of a sixties throwback. <laughs> In what way are you thinking? Like go, well, going to some sort of hippie commune and un what is it? Un- <laughs> what was it? Unplug uh, and tune in, drop out, whatever. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was born in the seventies, uh, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, if, if he's influenced by Heidegger, that's that is not unsurprising, you know, um, that these themes might be recurring again. I'm wondering, right? Is there a positive? notion of freedom in what he's talking about huh. um or is 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 this freedom that we we that it seems to be something illusory whereby we we co- we're constantly lacerating ourselves and impugning ourselves in the name of freedom um mm-hmm. or some type of freedom which is not really authentic or it's not real right. freedom i'm does, does that sound right austin yeah i think so i it's really interesting. I actually just listened to your lovely chat with Mark Sinclair on Bergson. Oh, yeah. And I have been – I mean I, I did PhD research with James Williams who's a Deleuze scholar. And so I read a lot of Deleuze, which means you read a lot of Bergson. And I've been really interested in Bergson's notion of duration for a long time. And I recently just finished a book by a philosopher named Simon Glazos, I think. It's called The Politics of Speed in which he talks about duration as being this – essential disruption of the future, right? Or or, uh, as Mark Sinclair called it, a qualitative multiplicity that is this sort of disruptive event that is non-spatial, right? As soon as you start to think about it, it becomes spatialized, but time then exists at this different qualitative level of disruption itself. And Hahn doesn't talk about Bergson from what I've read, but I think the idea of Das Nicht or the idea of annihilation that he seems to build on with with Heidegger kind of has a similar a similar force for him that that there is this notion of kind of the annihilation of the pure positivity of late capitalism or let's say the qualitative disruption of this uh bland transparency of pleasure seeking and what he calls the pornification of society where everything is on display. Nothing is hidden anymore, right? I think this idea of negativity, of annihilation, of duration, uh, of the event in Deleuze, I think all of these things are sort of circling around kind of a, a similar tendency or they're trying to articulate something different or are trying to articulate something similar. And I think that's kind of what freedom then would ultimately be for him is freedom would be the eventual disruption of the same and it's something that's always future, but maybe not future in a temporal sense, a la Bergson's criticism of temporality as being spatial, but some sort of perpetual disruption that is constantly occurring. Okay, yeah, because I think that then would be a good place to talk about what he means by negativity. So this is, I guess, where it gets slightly complicated. I mean, well, he's kind of sort of uh, follows Nietzsche a little bit in this because uh, – he seems to put a positive value on negativity, right. which I know, which is a, uh, which is um, 
a contradiction in terms, I guess, or at least in the surface value. But I have a quote here from him. Um, I think this is from the Burnout Society. He says, because otherness is disappearing, we live in a time that is poor in negativity. Mm. So in substance, I mean, you probably see this in the existentialist of Sartre as well. Uh, negativity, the idea that I can negate what I am, is, is, is something we should we should understand because we can become something or we can become something other than how we are determined. Mm. So is 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 that how uh, Han is up understanding this role of negativity? Yeah, uh, it is always difficult. This is one of the things that kind of jars in my mind as I'm reading existentialists or reading uh, Heidegger or Heidegger or Heideggerian scholars, and I'm I'm trying to think about negativity as not being understood uh, as a secondary order, but negativity as a sort of primary ontological category. And it's very difficult to think just because the, the word itself, is, we're so accustomed to thinking it as being like the negation of the things that are not, right? Like I go into a room and is Pierre there? No, Pierre is not there. So that's the negation of the thing. But then for Sartre, that's what he calls a negatite. And what does that do is that implies the negativity that undergirds the ontological experience. So one way I've been thinking about this recently is in reference to – I've been reading this book by Sergei Prozorov called "World uh, Ontology and World Politics, Void Universalism One," And he's trying to ground an ontological – a universal ontological project on the idea that the world is nothing. And without it's a it's a pretty complex philosophical argument that he goes through. It's a fantastic work, I think. But I think ultimately, without getting too bogged down and sidetracked here, what he's trying to do is he's trying to argue that once you strip away phenomenal the, the relations of phenomenological experience, or in a Heideggerian lens, we might say the, the the relations of the ontic, what you're left with is being, the ontological. You're left with, and for Prozorov, he's kind of following Heidegger, but then he's kind of reading Heidegger alongside Bedieu and it's this strange argument. They might sound like strange bedfellows, but it kind of worked for the argument. And so then he wants to say that this this thing that's left over at the ontological, once all the relations of phenomenological or ontic reality are stripped away, is a radical multiplicity. And it and I think there's something interesting in that that kind of maps onto what Han is doing. And I think that's also then part of the reason why Bedieu wrote the preface to Agony of Eros is that he sees in Han something intriguing that he's also trying to work through with his evental ontology, right? Um, the difference yeah, so being, for, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Aston. Yeah, so for the uh, for for Badu, the uh, what's important is that we have sub, something should happen. Right. It's quite simple, Badu, in a way. There has to be an event. It has to be transformative. Right. It has to change the dimensions of our world. Exactly, and, and that's yeah. So there has to be some meaningful change. That's what negativity is then. Right. And I, and I think for Han, maybe the difference, and I'm not 100% sure this is my reading of Han, but I think for Han, the difference would be is that he's almost more Deleuzian in that events aren't rare, but it's always possible. It's always there. It's always happening. Disruption is always present. And maybe kind of for people who listened to the Bergson thing, it's this idea of this qualitative disruption. It's it's always happening. And I think, yes. I think for Han... I think negativity is potentially always there, but burnout society, late capitalist society, essentially covers over that. It essentially restricts our access and our ability to see that, which is why he talks about boredom and deep contemplation like Heidegger would, because those are the ways that we can not be so enamored by the images and the pleasures and the fleeting elements of positivity that just continue to burn us out, but we can attune ourselves to that clearing of being, to use the Heideggerian language, or we can attune ourselves to the negativity that is radically disruptive. And when we do that, it shocks us into thought and um, it, it exposes us to a different uh, way of attuning ourselves or orienting ourselves within the world. Well, it's, I guess there's a difference between things which happen, which which are happening, and things which are not happening. So we, everybody wants something to happen to them, you know. Everybody mm. wants something good, something meaningful. Whether that's in terms of relationships, whether it's in terms of politics, whether it's in terms of uh, even their job, you know, right. even their job, you know, they, everyone wants to have a job that's 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 meaningful and fulfilling and rewarding and all of these things. But uh, 
unfortunately, that is not to be the case, right? Right. So it's the drab then, repetition of the same over and over every day, right. and it beats you into submission of this of the sameness. Yeah, and uh, so uh, what he's saying then is that we, bec- I guess, humans in late capital. Uh, which what, what he means by that is how we organize our economies now. Right. Um, Han is suggesting that. Um, we 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 are overly committed to homogeneity, to sameness, to to something, I guess, profoundly drab, and our lives are becoming meaningless because of it. Maybe we can even go further, not just overcommitted, because that still implies that we have an agency outside of it. It's that we are so constituted by that logic that we have become ourselves drab beings. So that's what he calls ourselves. He says we are achievement subjects. And so it's almost that – I know it's hard to think about, but it's almost as though we ourselves have completely embodied this logic of the same. And so it's like – and the reason that negativity comes into this and he relates it to otherness, this idea of the disruption, his point is, is that's all covered in the inferno of the same because now everything is just a fantasy of my own desire. Right, everything just becomes this object that I can consume to give myself pleasure. So even sex, for example, or even quote unquote love, which he says is not really love, it's just simply the projection of my consumeristic desire onto an other object, and the otherness of that other object then becomes not other; it just becomes me. And so I really just want me reflected back to me. And that's what our entire society gives us is this perpetual kind of self-enjoying consummation or consumption, I mean, of ourselves in quote unquote other objects, but they're not really other. They're maybe lowercase other and there is no real other. And it is only when we encounter the real other that we actually encounter negativity because it's terrifying and disrupting. And for him, love, politics – Philosophy are essentially disruptive and terrifying because they require the other. Yeah, they, they, that sounds almost pl- yeah. yeah, sounds almost platonic, isn't it? I mean, but he does. He uh, talks about Plato in the Agony of Eros. He's really interested, actually, in the way that Plato talks about uh, Eros. Uh, let me see. I actually I wrote down a quote here. If I can find it, I don't remember where it was. Um, what does he say? Yeah, I don't – okay, I don't have the quote, but it's in the final – oh, here it is. Uh, He's talking about Plato, and it's in the final chapter or second to last chapter in the Agony of Eros, and he says that uh, Eros is called philosophos. It's the friend of wisdom in Plato. So the philosopher for him is a friend, a lover of wisdom, and this is why for Plato and for Han, thinking must begin with Eros because it is the thing that allows us to be able to access Lagos, which is why he says philosophy is the translation of Eros into Lagos. So it is, I mean, he, this is why I said he's an interesting kind of syncretist, because in one chapter, he'll be talking about Lars von Trier, and then he'll be talking about Heidegger, and then he'll be talking about Agamben, and then Plato, and then Deleuze and Guattari, and these thinkers that we might not at first glance think belong in the same category, but he does a really nice job of kind of weaving together, borrowing what he wants from them and placing them into uh, an argument that supports what it is that he's trying to get across. Again, I guess it's because of the the word negativity, I think. That's probably what people might struggle with because, uh, as I said already, because otherness is appearing, we live in a time that is poor in negativity. Um. Well, it's it's. it's I'm, I'm trying to think of how oh, how 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 can we explain that negativity in a way yeah. that could we give examples of it for you know for for instance you know where we could uh, say okay in, in, in the burnout society we're motivated not even motivated we've transformed ourselves to such a degree we're hyper narcissistic uh, defined by hyper attention. Yeah. Uh, or a lack of attention, even a lack of care, perhaps. Mm. Would, that, would, that, would, that, would that be? A, could we give examples of that? Do you think, Austin? A lack of care. Well, maybe anything that would that would expose you and your own vulnerability would be something that would introduce you to the negativity, right? So maybe when you're taking care of a sick loved one, 
in that instance, you are maybe you're you're encountering your own fragility as you kind of have projected it onto that person, but maybe at the same time, there's something that is just so excessive about the trauma of seeing a loved person in pain or or dying that that confronts you with your own mortality or it confronts you with the other person's pain in a radical way that it kind of cuts through all of those positive pleasure-seeking elements of the burnout society. And I think one of my favorite little anecdotes is by Gilles Deleuze. He's talking about Oh God! What's the name of the sh- the the short story or the novel by Dickens? Um, oh God, I can't remember what it's called. But it's it's about this guy who's a sort of drifter, and everybody scorns him and hates him. And he comes into the town, and at one one day he falls really sick, and he he's like dying in the in the middle of the square. And this is a guy that everybody kind of hated. And all of a sudden, in that moment when he was dying, or he was on, it seemed that he was on his deathbed. Everybody rushed to him just instantaneously, regardless of how much they hated him or didn't like him or whatever, in that moment, all of those other issues got suspended and they rushed to his aid. And then all of a sudden he makes a recovery and they go back to scorning him again and hating him again. And Deleuze (laughs) talks about how it's in that moment that like life burst through, what he calls imminence, right? And I think there's something here too, is that you're confronted with something that is radically other, that is from the outside, that's just excessive, that doesn't exist within our matrix of everyday thinking. And for Han, that's essential for love. That's essential for politics. But our late capitalist burnout society doesn't allow that. It actually stifles all of that so that we don't ever really feel threatened. We don't ever really feel our vulnerability. And it's only in those rare instances. I don't know. Maybe when you're on an airplane and you're feeling a lot of turbulence <laughs> and you start to feel you start to feel the real or something. You know, it's that being towards death again. And there's Heidegger again maybe coming into this. And I think it's in those instances, that's what negativity is. Negativity is is that experience of the radical otherness that is beyond or excessive of our positive everyday experience in late capitalism. So really, it's feeling alive in a very simple elementary sense. You know, when, when we feel we've lost the capacity to feel alive in the burnout society. I think so. And negativity is something that can help us fe- feel what it is like to be alive. Yeah. What is it? I don't remember if he says it, but it's we're it's like we're too alive to not do something, but we're not alive enough to do something else. It's something along those lines. It's this paradox where it's like we're basically zombies. I think in a way we are the Walking Dead in a lot of ways. I think for Han, and this is why I think his work is so interesting because there is this romanticism in it. It's about even though he's quite a pessimist. I'm an optimist, so I I impute an optimism into what he's saying as though there is a possibility to to experience true otherness and life, let's say, to be alive, to experience true freedom, not the freedom that capitalism says, which is be free and be free to what? Be free to consume and be free to consume what? Be free to consume what the market offers you insofar as the market demands that you must consume. That's not freedom. And Han recognizes that. But there's a potential for real freedom in the encounter of love and otherness. And for him, he thinks that philosophy is, in a way, the uh, discourse or the reason on love. Love and philosophy are intertwined. And theory can help us to uh, to fall in love with life or to become alive. Okay. Now, one of the things, other things that I wanted to talk about, I think it might be a useful way of... Uh, illuminating what Han is trying to achieve and uh, that is with his critique of uh, uh, the multitasker, right? Yeah. Uh, the figure of the multitasker. And this is from the Burnout Society as well. And I have a quote here for you. Um, so he says, the attitude toward time and environment known as multitasking does not represent civilizational progress. Human beings in the late modern society of work and information are not the only ones capable of multitasking. Rather, such an aptitude amounts to a regression. Multitasking is commonplace among wild animals. <laughs> it is necessary, I guess he's saying, for, for survival in the wilderness. Yeah, he talks about how like a 
I don't remember what animal, but let's say a tiger is, it's got to protect its young while it's eating food and it's sniffing around and it's paying attention to the sounds of other animals in the bushes. It's multitasking. He says, there's nothing superhuman about multitasking. Like we try to say that, oh my God, we are, (laughs) you are such an amazing human because you're so busy and you have 20,000 things on your to-do list and you're juggling all these things. Wow. What a superhero you are. He says, that's not anything special. Uh, yeah, so that's like that's actually an example of being less human. In a way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this again goes to this is why he's interested in meditation and why he's interested in this idea of withdrawal. Um, so the Bernard Stiegler talks about the idea of the otium or the negotium, the in like Stoic Roman philosophical practice, this idea that you had time carved out in your day to be able to meditate and write down in your journal about who you are and what you're struggling with and things like that, right? And uh, Han talks about this as well as this important thing that the burnout society does not allow us to do. And and that's maybe what for him a truly human activity would be is not the hyperactivity where we're, we don't even have time to think, but rather the times when we can just completely separate and engage in this act of, of self-reflection, of self-criticism, and and not be so consumed by these objects of consumption. And I think we need to make it clear too that objects of consumption here don't just mean I go to the store and I buy food or I uh, go on Twitter and or, I'm sorry, I go to I go to Netflix and I consume images. It's everything. It's it's from the the way that we shake hands with people. It's the business meetings that we set up. It's the uh, laughter that we exchange over beers, all of those things I think for him are sullied by this logic. So everything becomes an encounter of consumption. And and so that we can't even enjoy laughter with our group of friends over some beers in an authentic way because all we're doing is consuming this laughter for our own enjoyment. Now, I don't think that we should take this and be like, Oh my God, we're in in despair. There is no such thing as truth ever, ever, ever. But I think his point is that this is the dominant logic of today and it has great hold over us. And if there is a criticism that I would level against Han is that he's not clear enough about those, those elements of remainder that we do get to experience that even make us like, how the fuck can he write this book? If we're really that inculcated, then how could he write this book? So obviously there's a sense in which we're able to attest to the beyond or to the otherness of of negativity or something like that. So it's still there. He just doesn't focus on that as much because he's a bit of a pessimist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, he does. He does a little, I think. I mean, when he talks about uh, multitasking and what you 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 call uh, or what, what, yeah, hyper-attention, what you've uh, mentioned is uh, hyper-attention in Han, um, he says that as sort of an alternative to that, and I guess you kind of alluded to this when you talked about stoicism, is he says that we should um, take up sort of boredom, in a sense. Boredom yeah. is, a, is, a, is a way out, if you like, perhaps, or a, an alternative to the burnout society. Boredom, deep contemplative attention. So I was wondering, could you maybe speak about that? Because you've, you've already... Um, uh, I know some of your background is in theology, so yeah. and you've already mentioned you know, how he, he talks about some Zen practices. Could right. you maybe perhaps elaborate on what Han means by boredom and, and deep contemplative attention? So I think boredom is something he takes straight out of Heidegger. And it is this ontological mood that opens us up to being, right? It is, um, it, it's almost that there's this poetic attention to the elemental, right? To nature, that that I think we get in Han. And I mean, I don't think that this is like some sort of smooth process that unites us with the one. It's some sort of disruptive encounter with the nothingness, the das nicht, the, the other that is essential in, in, in being. And so boredom is an attunement or a sort of orientation, let's say, away from the burnout, the, the 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 options that a burnout society offers to us, and away from this logic of late capitalism, away from all of that 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 speed 
that he sees as being problematic that doesn't allow us to actually recognize, uh, I guess, love or or whatever else. Um, and so yeah, I, I think Heidegger, that's... Oh, sorry. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, sorry to cut across you. Um, but that's for okay. Heidegger, I think uh, boredom is... Um, what's interesting about it is it's kind of a motivator. He's not saying be bored or it's good to be bored. And I think Heidegger's idea is that sort of boredom makes you... It, it, what it does is it, uh, it, it, it puts you where you are. Because right. when one is bored, like you're waiting for a train or a bus or whatever... Uh, the one thing excruciating thing about it is that you can't go anywhere other than where you are. It renew you it illuminates the world in place. It illuminates mm. the world. The uh, I don't know the bus station, uh, the seats that you're sitting on, and in that way, then it's uh, it's it's an opening onto something maybe more positive, or so onto questions of what's meaningful and authentic, and yeah. how you might you know go okay, well, what can I do? here I am? What can I do you know to make uh, right. What is what is my life like? That is such a yeah. way that I can uh, uh, send it in a different direction. Yeah, maybe you know I had a I had a guy hit me up on Twitter and ask me. I, I don't remember how I was doing another podcast and I and I mentioned something and and he reached out to me and oh we were talking about like the breaking of the fourth wall in postmodern film or in. in you know, like Brechtian theater or something like that. And so he said, is is breaking the fourth wall kind of an everyday experience? Does that ever happen to you? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, you're, he's like, you're like talking to someone and you feel like you, that this isn't all there is. And I said, well, do you mean that somehow that this just seems like BS? You're talking with someone and then you're like, wait a second, what you're saying is only what you heard on Fox News or what you read in, you know, The Guardian. And there's, there's like this disconnect and you start to kind of get a peek behind the veil. And he said, yes, that's exactly what I mean. He's like, what is that experience? And I think that this idea of boredom in, in Heidegger and in Hahn is precisely that. It's when the contingent relations of the world show themselves as not being necessary, you get kind of a glimpse behind the veil. And and that's why boredom, that's why being unplugged, that's why meditation all have import for Han is because they do, they get us behind the veil, but they're practices that we can engage in. You don't have to simply rely on the random occurrence. It's something that you can actually maybe proactively engage in and stimulate the practice of, uh, of experiencing beyond the veil even more so. And I think that's one of the things that for him philosophy does and that, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually, I think that's exactly what philosophy is for him. I really, I, I really like that the idea of uh, sort of uh, breaking the third wall and the real world. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, because because uh, uh, I just think like you know, what's the what's the corollary of that? The negative corollary of that is like you know you got the friends laugh track in your mind all the time. You know, what's, exactly. How how, how yeah. awful is that? Yeah, <laughs> Ex exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So. Um, Right, yeah. Now, one of the things, I'm not sure uh, if you've picked up on this, is one of the things that interested me in uh, what I've read in Han is, uh, um, it kind of made sense to me, and again, in a sort of a, a sense of a philosophy of everyday life, which is the idea of, you know, on top of boredom, on top of deep contemplative attention, he talks about this thing called deep tiredness, right? And it's kind of, it's like, I don't know, it's like, you know, when you're when you're with your friends in an evening and uh, it's sort of a, sort of a, a sense of deep contentment, yeah, uh, exactly. Takes you out of yourself and puts you into a group, or puts you. Uh, these they're the type of moments that we should be, I guess, pursuing. They're the real moments. Okay. Um, could, uh, does, is 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 that something that you uh, have any thoughts about in relation to Han? Yeah, is there um, something? Is there something to that? Yeah, yeah. There's something. It's almost as though when we're tired for Han, that we aren't as caught up in the hyperactivity of the achievement society or the burnout society, right? And and tiredness is kind of the occurrence of the excess breaking through, right? The it's like it's like a moment that allows us to not be so caught up in needing to be this entrepreneur of the self. We don't need to just we're not, we don't have the energy to just simply keep creating and becoming a better us and and it's almost as though in those moments of tiredness we become a little more free for for Han, and there's a, there's an excellent short little book by Jonathan Crary called Twenty Four Seven, in which he talks about in our late capitalist society the only time 
that we are disconnected from or unplugged from the capitalist system is when we're asleep. That's the only time we're not being exploited now. Every, every other moment outside of that, images are coming to us. We're thinking about the next meeting we have to go to. We're preparing like what is our list for tomorrow. Um, someone's sending you an email. We're 24-7 bombarded with things, and it's really almost impossible to disconnect except when we're asleep. And I think there's something similar going on here for Han. It's not as radical. Um, it's not a complete unplugging. But there's just something about this idea of being tired that is a resistance to capitalism because capitalism – doesn't stop. It, it it is the complete resistance to entropy, oh. right? And and it in in a way then it's the complete resistance to the reality of life. I mean, entropy is real and capitalism resists that. I mean, economists they cannot talk about entropy. Like capitalist economists, microeconomists, neoclassical economists, they cannot because it doesn't exist in their world because capitalism must be sustained by endless growth. It must and when you start to be like, yes, but you do realize that everything is slowly dwindling down to heat death, right? From from order to disorder. This is happening. You can resist all you want, but you are fighting against ontology itself or you are fighting against nature or you're fighting against physics. It jars with their mind. And so I think sleep and tiredness is the sort of manifestation of frailty. It's the manifestation of weakness. It's the manifestation of otherness. Maybe it's a brief glimpse into death in a way. And it's in those moments that you aren't so caught up in just producing for the market. Right. So it's like when you're when you become tired, what's happening? Well, your body's starting to shut down, you know, you get sleepy, you need you need to recharge, basically, you know. Right. I know you need to recharge for t- tomorrow's day of work and multitasking or whatever. And you get delirious but, and you say stupid things and you laugh at mm, stupid things and you forget things. You're not efficient. And capitalism requires efficiency. And tiredness is the sort of contrast to that yeah and it's like it's, yeah i mean and sleep deprivation is a form of torture also <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah 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 exactly yeah <laughs> exactly and in a way in a way i think that he would say there's a sense in which that torture of sleep deprivation is is inherent in the logic of the burnout society which is why we get burnt out which is why hyperactivity is not or or even multitasking is not some positive thing it's it's the opposite of what our bodies are 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 capable of sustaining yeah yeah that makes that makes sense um so um i think i think that's a good place to end actually deep tiredness i mean although i i do i do worry austin that even even our dreams you know the uh even our dreams might be being colonized as well by capitalism or hyperactivity you know we're know. we're going to a situation where we get like oh my god i gotta i got i'm dreaming you start dreaming of uh, all the sort of the deadlines you have at work and things like that you know yeah and uh, exactly and Exactly. And then even sleep is used as a way of social reproduction, right? It's so you can be rested, so you can be more efficient the next day. So make sure you get your eight hours and take your melatonin at night before you go to sleep and do whatever else or your CBD oil or whatever it is that you do so that you can rest better and produce more, right? And so there is yeah. still something insidious about that, that, that I don't know. And I, and it's only a matter of time. I mean, just wait until some business person is like, I have found a way to be able to charge the electricity in your house by plugging your finger into a socket while you're sleeping that uses the electrical pulses of your body. I mean, it's not, come on. It's, is that really that far out of the realm of possibility? It doesn't seem it. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think uh, he's he's talking then about these I don't know like trying to reconnect to his deep meaningful activities that remind us of what it's like to be human. Yeah, uh, trying to find things that are exceptional or unique or have a degree of otherness to them, which allows us to transfigure or to refresh our lives. Is that right? I mean, again, I I wish he would focus on that more. I think it's there. And I think that, that yes, he would, if we were sitting down with him and talking with him, I think he would say, I would like to maximize those instances of human experience and minimize the ones that are conditioned by the logic of late capitalism. But he doesn't spend as much time talking about that. And so, like I said, if I was going to to level my big criticism against him, it would be that. And it's because 
analysis and diagnosis is really important, but I, I am always looking for, okay, so then what do we do? Like, like, what do we do about this? How do we give people hope? Um, and, and even if it's a sort of strange understanding of hope, I want to build some sort of political or communal or societal or ethical notion that, that can give people something beyond just the dire diagnosis that everything is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where do you and where and, and where do you see uh, where do you see that then? I mean, you must see as you, you said you said it already. I mean, where do you see the the alternative, the hopes? What kind of practices have you have you have you observed either in in literature, philosophy, scholarship, or in um, everyday life, which uh, can I guess supplement what Hannah's talking about? Yeah, I'm. For me, I I think that there are a few ways to do it. I think that. Political organizing and community is so important. Um, you know, in, in an era where families are not the stable entity that they're maybe propped up to be all the time, or where uh, political—and when I say political, I don't necessarily mean electoral politics, but I mean local trade union activity. Or I'm a part of a reading group here in Sydney where we get together and we read articles from Jacobin. And we sit around and we talk strategy and we talk about uh, the things that interest us or that frighten us. You know, today we actually just had a meeting and we talked about the exciting uh, sort of leftist movements in UK and in America and in Mexico with the election of AMLO. And we talked about some of the potential pitfalls, but then at the same time, don't despair and wallow in that and think about how we can continue to build productive programs of community together. And then at the same time, I think art, for me, art is something that is so important. You know, I've, I've done a lot of work in film and television and stage, and I do podcasting and, and things like that. And, and for me, it's this idea of creating alongside people. And this is why philosophy is so powerful for me is because I really do agree with Han that philosophy and eros, that there is something erotic about philosophy. And I don't mean sexual, but there is this this incitement of joy that can come through questioning and thinking and pondering. And yes, it can open up doors to depressing and terrible things as well. But there's something for me enlivening about the creative practice of philosophy that I that I think you also see in art and in literature and in film. And it's just trying to make connections with other people and with other forms of that expression that can stoke that joy within the communities that you're a part of as you build those communities, you know, and they kind of become the the glue that build those communities themselves. They're not perfect. It's not like that there is a perfect art community that you slip into. It's it's becoming a part of communities together. Like as stupid as it sounds, I think even something like this podcast, like like for me, when I listened to that talk with you and Mark Sinclair, I was I was like, yes, like I, I got a burst of energy. And then I was out having drinks on Friday night with my buddy, Alex, who's a, who's a philosopher. And I was telling him about Bergson's notion of duration. And we were both sitting there and we were talking about this idea of qualitative multiplicity. And we were like, I don't know what that means, but it's awesome. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and, and it's those moments that when society is so hard on us and it's imposing – so many demands for more and for faster that when you can have those moments to slow down and talk and 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 have those creative connections i think for me that that's that's kind of where i like to to build out on maybe some of the areas that han is is suggesting that we should build out okay i think that's uh that's uh, that's really that's really that's really nice and it's encouraging and it's positive and i think it's a good place to end before we go back <laughs> to the burnout society yeah um, exactly before you go, uh, Austin, uh, tell us about your uh, give us uh, your podcast and your YouTube channel uh, if you want to give them a plug because they're oh, yeah. uh, the world worth listening to. No, cool. Um, so, especially for people out there who are like philosophy educators or they're interested in philosophy more, I am a producer and researcher for the Wisecrack YouTube channel, and we make philosophical or now we're even starting to do scientific and psychological uh, analyses of film, television, pop cultural figures, things like that. So you can check us out on YouTube. I also co-host their movie podcast. It's called Show Me the Meaning. And we do, you know, hour-long deep dives into sometimes classics of cinema or sometimes whatever the next 
I don't know, like BS Marvel film is that comes out that people want us to talk about. But uh, like we did The Shining last week. And then I also co-host a philosophy podcast with a buddy of mine who's a philosophy professor in Southern California. And it's called Owls at Dawn. And we do philosophy, politics, religion. We both have theology backgrounds. So we kind of talk a little bit about theology as well. So you can check that out. Outstanding. Outstanding. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.